And you can open your Bibles to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. That was the uh, optimistic shout of approval during Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and what we referred to as Palm Sunday, only to be turned on by the majority, turned over to the authorities, taken and crucified on a Roman cross, a despicable, excruciating, kind of death. Crucifixion is actually the most painful torture ever invented. It was conceived um, and implemented by the Persians in 300 BC, perfected by the Romans about 100 BC. And historical documents have have been discovered trying to explain uh, what took place when a criminal was executed on a Roman cross. The victim's legs were made to bend at 45 degrees, causing severe cramping and fatigue, forcing the victim to move up and down about a 12-inch span in order to breathe. There was the dislocation of wrists, shoulders, elbows, delirium, often set in. Physiological reflexes required uh, deeper breaths, uh, where eventually the body would become starved of oxygen and greater amounts of carbon dioxide um, in the blood. There's fluctuations in blood pressure, dehydration, which would lead to heart and lung failure. So the process of, of crucifixion um, in the, adva- the adverse pain due to it, due to it, became known as excruciating pain out of the cross or from the cross. That's where we get excruciating from. It's, it's a kind of death meant to be tortuous um, as designed by Rome. It was a form of execution reserved for the worst of the worst of criminals. Matter of fact, as you probably know this, it was actually against the law uh, for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was so bad that a Roman statesman by the name of Cicero said, quote, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was a painful shameful death and precisely the death that our Lord Jesus Christ experienced to the fullest. The Jews, as you know, regarded anyone who was crucified to be under the curse of God. 
So by manipulating the authorities, they desperately wanted Jesus crucified so that they could declare, this is not the Messiah, this is not the Son of God, but instead, this is one who's under the curse and judgment of God. And indeed, he was. This was the death Jesus chose. And was the focal point of his life. From the time of his birth, throughout his upbringing, the shadow of the cross loomed over the one and only Son of God. From the beginning of his public ministry, he deliberately and resolutely moved towards it. Every move Every event leading up to his death was according to his hand and his timetable. He was in control under the sovereign rule and reign of his father as led by the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God is involved, was involved with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why he came into the world, pursuing and bringing to completion the will of God. Scripture said he set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, he went on to eventually teach his disciples, saying he must go to Jerusalem, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. Over one-third of the words of the Gospels are given to the death of Jesus Christ. One-third. Now, as significant as his birth is, along with his life, teaching, and his preaching, the preacher of all preachers, it's his death that is the apex of his mission. The cross is significant not only for us, but also for God himself. He's the one who ordained it, orchestrating all of the events of history, moving towards its fulfillment, culminating in the crucifixion of our Lord outside the gates of Jerusalem. Now, Scripture reveals to us that God most fully expresses his glory through the death of his son. And I want you to look with me at the expression of his glory in the gospel given to us in the form of a prophecy written 750 years before Jesus was physically crucified right here in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. It's our text for this evening. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is what's known as a servant song of Isaiah, the promised Messiah of God who was to come to bring salvation to his people, a people from throughout the world. It's one of four servant songs. The other one is uh, Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 42, 49, and 50. Now in the New Testament, in Luke 24, the Lord Jesus he had been crucified. It's, it's Sunday. He's alive. He's died. He's risen again. He's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples who are lamenting over his death, having no knowledge at that point of his resurrection. Jesus speaks to them. They do not recognize him. He said, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was not it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now later that same day, Jesus met with the rest of his disciples and he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He opened their minds to understand the Old Testament. We read it, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, but we we must understand he's talking about what we know as the Old Testament saying to them, it is written that Christ would suffer. He would rise again from the dead the third day. Now, although they had a theology for the glory of the Messiah, the Jews had a theology for that. They had missed or perhaps refused the theology of the suffering Messiah. The Jews understood God's servant as being high and lifted up, exalted, succeeding, and ultimately shutting the mouths of the kings of the nations. That's what they wanted. When they see his glory. That's what they were waiting for. That's what they were anticipating. And if you look first, before we get into this, look back at chapter 52 and verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, the verbs used to describe the Messiah here are used to describe God himself in Isaiah 6. Isaiah, who saw the Lord what? High and lifted up. When we get to John chapter 12, John informs us that the vision of Isaiah 6 of God being high and lifted up, sitting on a throne, was a vision of Jesus Christ. 
informing us that Messiah will be in essence and nature exactly as God himself. Notice verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance, this is God speaking, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, this exaltation of God's servant would no doubt come to be, but not without humiliation. There would be no exaltation without the humiliation of the servant of the Most High. So both his humiliation and exaltation are here promised by God. Yahweh speaking. This is God's plan. This is God's promise. These are God's words. Written 750 years before Christ would be struck. Friends, never, ever make the mistake of viewing Jesus as a victim. If you're here tonight, Because of pity for Jesus, he doesn't need your pity. There'll be people here on Sunday who come up every year pitying Jesus for what he suffered on Friday. He doesn't need your pity. You need his. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. We need him. The cross was no accident. The cross was not God's plan that went awry. But instead, beloved, it was the culmination and fulfillment of his plan. Perfect plan. So Isaiah writes here, as I said, 750 years before fulfillment, as though he's giving an eyewitness account. We read it as though we're there. You know why, if you're a Christian? Because you were there. Crucified in Christ. And he died for the sins of people like you and me. The suffering servant of Jehovah. The disfigured Messiah. He is no victim, beloved. He is the victorious son of God. Empowered by the spirit of God for suffering and for glory. Never view him as a victim. He's victor. Amen. So many people have this pity for Jesus on Good Friday. Shame on any Christian who does. So knowing what Jesus did on the cross, okay, we know what Jesus did on the cross. What was his father doing in the cross? What was his father doing in? In the cross. What does the cross mean to God? Why did God ordain it this way as the only way to be saved? Truth is not relative, my friends. Truth is absolute. And salvific truth is found right here. Christ alone. He's not one of many ways. He is the way. He's not one of many truths. He is the truth. 
He is the life. He's the only life for the hereafter. Make no mistake. Now look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Yet. Did you notice that word yet? That is to say, even though, okay, even though, as verse 9 says, there's no violence, no deceit in his mouth. In other words, in spite of the fact that he's perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Yet. Now, men, of course, unjustly tried him and brutalized him. Look back at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He went from trial to execution. Kangaroo court, held in the middle of the night. No man was to be tried at night. It was against the law. It was against Jewish law. Now, being unjustly tried and brutalized by men is fulfilled in the Gospels through that unjust trial, mocking, spitting, punching, slapping, beating, being flogged, being crowned with, 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 with thorns on his head, and then nailed to a cross. Now, as terrible as those physical sufferings were, it's his spiritual sufferings that were much, much worse. The scriptures we read earlier when Jesus pled with the Father, when he was pleading, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. This cup of what? Wrath. Let this cup of wrath pass from me three times. There we see the humanity of our Lord. Nevertheless, he said, I, did I not come to drink the cup of my Father? Right? As terrible as the physical sufferings were, that wasn't the cup he was asking to be passed, to pass by. It was the anguish of his soul that he would suffer. He would be abandoned by his father on the cross. It has been well said, the soul, S-O-L-E, of his sufferings were the suffering of his soul. That is, beloved, the unseen agony of suffering punishment for the sins of men. For your sins if you're a believer. And only if you're a believer. Back in my hometown, I saw the freak show on the news last night. These local atheists have signs of the Capitol building that said... Jesus did not die for our, in quotations, our sins. Jesus is a myth. And you know what? They're right. He didn't die for their sins. Period. He died for his sheep. Because only his sheep follow him. We had somebody well-meaning 
number of years ago from this church preaching the gospel at Balboa Park. Unbeknownst to us, bless his heart. But he's just preaching to everyone. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins until some unbeliever came up and said, Jesus didn't die for my sins, pal, because I'm not a believer. Let's get our theology straight here. He died for his sheep. Now, Scripture teaches the only adequate punishment for sin is God's never-ending wrath. Eternal punishment, that's hell, friends. That's where people go who don't believe. Eternal punishment, that's hell. That is exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross. And you say, but he was only there for a few hours. But think about this. You're finite. He's infinite. He is the infinite God-man himself. So for an infinite being, Jesus, to experience the full force of God's wrath equals eternal hell to be dumped upon you. Hell descended on Jesus. Jesus didn't descend to hell. Hell came upon him on the cross. The infinite son of God who bore the unmitigated wrath of the Father experiencing everything that hell will do forever as he hung on that cross. That was the worst and most horrific sufferings that Jesus experienced to be forsaken by his Father, and he was. And he was. The perfect, harmonious love relationship between the Father and the Son wasn't merely interrupted, beloved. He was abandoned in darkness. You see this. You'll never understand your salvation unless you understand the cross. Those who reject Christ go to hell for eternity and experience the same. Now, while men at that time, as we read here, are doing the worst act imaginable to Jesus, God is performing the greatest act imaginable at the same time. Where God, here the scripture says, is delighted to crush him, meaning to shatter. To shatter him, to break to pieces. Look back at verse 4. Smitten by God and afflicted. Smitten by God. Again, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. You know, the question is often asked, who killed Jesus? Right? Was it the Jews calling for his execution? Was it the Romans who actually nailed him to the cross? Was it Pilate who approved of it? Was it me? Was it you? Yes, 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 yes. But the ultimate and final answer is that God killed Jesus and was pleased to do so according to his eternal purpose. Putting him, notice, to grief, deep in his soul, putting him to grief, causing him to suffer, making an offering for guilt. That's the cross. 
Okay, what does this tell us about God, friends? First, it tells us that he is a God of unyielding justice. Did you get that? Unyielding justice. Saying that he will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. I'm telling you, he means it. Even if it means executing the son of his love who stands in the place of the guilty that he's determined to save. That's love. Unyielding justice. So God's delight and pleasure in crushing his son like this was not a delight in his pain, but a delight in God's purpose. The delight was in the end result. It wasn't in the pain of his son. It was delight in the accomplishment, not the suffering, but in salvation that would be accomplished through crushing his son. That's his delight. Literally, here it says, because he would render himself as a guilt offering, giving his life to save sinners. You see, it was the outcome that pleased God. Not the pain. Not the abandonment, not hell's descent upon his son, even though the pain and agony was necessary. Why was it necessary, people say? Why was it necessary? Why such pain? Why such anguish? Why the abandonment? Because, quite simply, Jesus had to die under the full, unmitigated, unrelieved realities of his divine law and wrath. God is just. He's just. God is holy, so he must be just. If he's just, he must be holy. That is God's unyielding justice. Now, God's justice in our day is so underestimated. You know, people have left this church whining that hell and judgment ought not to be preached. You know why? Because they don't understand God's justice. And therefore, haven't truly grasped his grace, of which they claim to know so well. Because the problem in our day is that they're not like God in their thinking. They're very much unlike God in their thinking. They pit his justice against his mercy, love, and grace. And they talk as though his grace and his mercy somehow trump his justice. You know, love wins out and justice fails. That's foolish theology. If that's your theology, throw it away and listen. On this good Friday that is so good. God's grace and mercy are never never, never given at the expense of his justice. He never compromises his justice for the sake of showing mercy. And what we see here is the wisdom of God revealed. Here, it shows us how he maintains his justice while showing mercy. That's the cross. That is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who is just was pleased to crush his son 
again, not because of any delight in seeing the agony of his son, but because of the great delight in the atonement provided by way of the son. Pleased. Because it was a guilt offering for all believers from Adam to the very last man or woman who will be saved, who are called according to his purpose. Someone will pay. Someone must pay. Someone did pay. Either he pays for you or you pay for yourself. And that's hell for eternity. That's what you've been delivered from by way of the cross. When Jesus became a man, he took the place of sinners. God treated him as a sinner, which necessitated his experiencing hell on the cross. The wage of sin is death. That's eternal death. God required full payment from his son. Full payment. And God plunged the sword of his justice into the breast of his only sinless son on Calvary's cross. He is a just God. Executed justice. That's what God did. He executed justice for the sake of his sheep, putting his son, the shepherd, to death. How do you possibly preach Christ? And his love and grace. How do you preach Christ and his love and his grace and his mercy without judgment and hell? How do you do it? You don't. You don't. It's not possible. You know the Old Testament sacrificial system? It's the background for what Isaiah is describing in this chapter, as well as the background for everything that happens in the New Testament regarding the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Judaism was a bloody religion, to say the least. Amen? As ordained by who? God himself. A bloody religion. Bloody lambs were given up daily. There were special sacrifices for sin on you know, certain occasions. There were seasonal and and annual sacrifices. The greatest being the sacrifice given on the day of atonement. The day of atonement. You take two goats, slit the throat of one, pour out its blood on the altar. Graphic? Yeah. That was the point. Blood poured out on the altar. They take a goat. The priest would place his hands on the head of the goat, uh, symbolic of the sins of the people, and drive it out into the wilderness. Picturing what? A scapegoat. A scapegoat. All of which pointed to the need of a true substitutionary sacrifice. Those were all pictures pointing to the ultimate fulfillment, what we just read, the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross teaching that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Atonement must be made by the shedding of blood. Sin must be paid for. 
removed. The only way to remove sin is by way of blood. Life is in the blood, the scripture says. So his soul here makes an offering for sin and guilt. The scapegoat of God's elect. Notice God secured the pardon of believers by way of the cross. Notice as we move on here, verse 10, he shall see his offspring. Suffering servant, he will see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. See his offspring? I thought he's dead. Prolong his days? Sounds like he was slaughtered. Satisfied? How? This is imagery here of childbirth. This, friends, is the confession of resurrection. Future tense. He will see his offspring. He will see his posterity. He will see his children. He will see all those that he paid for. He will see his redeemed. He will see his sheep. He will see you in glory. Amen? How? By resurrection from the dead as we'll celebrate on Sunday. And his ascending glory, ruling, reigning, and receiving his own to himself. That's how. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will, they will come to me. I'll lose none of them, and I will raise them up at the last day. He will see his offspring. That's what he means. He ever lives to see his children. He will see his completed bride. He'll come to get her. Verse 12. Notice. After he offers himself, servant prolongs his days. He's satisfied. He's given a reward. He's given a portion. He's given spoil. This is his offspring. All those born anew as children of God by his work and then through the cross. Now, if we're not careful, This is important. We'll miss a grand truth taught here in Isaiah 53. And that is, if you notice, the Messiah does not fail to save any of his people. He does not fail. He actually and fully saves them from first to last. In other words, to cut to the chase, Isaiah will have none of this idea that the atonement merely makes salvation possible. The point we read here, the atonement was definite, permanent, limited. Word. (laughs) Jesus makes many, verse 11, to be accounted as what, beloved? As righteous. God requires perfect righteousness to get into heaven. Did you know that? You want to go to heaven? You have to be perfectly holy, sinless, righteous. And you and I do not have it in and of ourselves. And yet God says here, in my son, I will provide the way. I will provide the righteousness. Many will be accounted as righteous, although they're sinners. He accounts them as righteous. If you're in Christ here tonight, 
In God's eyes, you are accounted as righteous. You're justified, declared free from all blame. Declared as though you were as righteous as Jesus. Because this is what he did for you. Paul declares that truth in the words of 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. You are in Christ the righteousness of God. That's the exchange that took place on the cross. The righteousness of one has our sins accounted to him, and the sinful ones, that's us, have his righteousness accounted to us. Isn't that beautiful? Spoken 750 years before it took place. Now, the most impactful words of the New Testament that describe this very visual gospel prophecy here in Isaiah 53 comes to us by way of Romans 3, verse 25. That Christ Jesus was put forward by who? By God as a propitiation by his blood to be received by, say it, faith. Big word, very important meaning. Kids, say propitiation. Go ahead. Children, little children. Pro, pit, chi, ation. Propitiation. If someone ever asks you, what does propitiation mean? I read it in the Bible. What does it mean? You say it means satisfaction. Say satisfaction. God's wrath was propitiated. God's wrath against sin and sinners was satisfied, absorbed by Jesus Christ. Just payment for God's wrath against God's wrath was paid in full. God's holy wrath is hanging over the heads of people, all of whom are sinners. God sends Jesus to absorb the wrath of the Father, for he hates sin. Jesus absorbed it on the cross. Put forward by God as a propitiation by his what? Blood. You don't talk about salvation without the blood. You don't talk about the love of God without a bloody mess at the cross. But couldn't just a little drop of his blood from his finger have saved us? Nope. It was his life drained out. That's the point. His life. Absorbing God's wrath. Carrying away at the cross our sins. Carrying them away. How long? For how long? Forever, if you're in Christ. If you're not in Christ, his wrath is looming over you now. And I bid you to come to him by faith. That's what he said, by faith. Received by faith. Propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. 
Not by doing something, not by turning it over a new leaf, not by cleaning up my life and doing this and doing that. I must have to go to church for 12 weeks and then, okay, I can probably get right with God. No, you must trust and believe by faith the Lord who shed his blood on Calvary's cross. You must embrace him by faith and realize you ain't got enough good in you to make it down the street, let alone make it to heaven. You need him. And he paid the price. That's the good news. You already heard the bad. God's wrath is looming over your head. You need his grace to remove the wrath. And there's only one who bore the wrath. It's his son Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before he ever went to the cross. Some words from Spurgeon. Quote. Standing at the foot of the cross, we see hands and feet and side, all distilling crimson streams of precious blood. It is precious because of its redeeming and atoning efficacy. By it, the sins of Christ's people are atoned for. They're redeemed from under the law. They're reconciled to God, made one with him. Christ's blood is also precious in its cleansing power. It cleanses us from all sin. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Through Jesus' blood, there's not a spot left upon any believer, no wrinkle, nor any such thing remains. Oh, precious blood, which makes us clean, removing the stains of abundant iniquity and permitting us to stand accepted in the beloved, notwithstanding the many ways in which we have rebelled against our God. End quote. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Do you see this? If you want to come to know more deeply what God is like, Christian, you want to study the depth of his love, then spend time observing what this event entails. You want to see grace and mercy? Study this. Examine God's wrath poured out upon Jesus. Examine God's hatred of sin and evil. And then you'll understand something of his love, something more of his mercy, something definitely of his grace displayed on the cross where Jesus was slaughtered. There you'll see his love. Hate and love meet on the cross. Mercy and wrath meet at the cross. Jesus came into the world for the express purpose of shedding his blood. If you don't understand his death, if you don't come to terms with his death, you will never be right with God, for it is through his death that the fulfilled mission of the Father was accomplished. Fulfilled through Christ. So this is a great motivation for all who know God, amen? for all who trust in Christ by faith, to tell others about the good news. Don't be ashamed of the blood. Modern day evangelicalism, as broad as that is, they try to sentimentalize the cross. They want to sentimentalize Jesus. He doesn't, no, don't sentimentalize Jesus. Amen? Amen? 
because on the cross, he actually experienced a horrible, bloody death. He was no mere martyr. He was crushed by the Father. Amen? So, we see the gospel prophesied long ago by Isaiah, fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ, made visible here at the communion table. Now we're going to come to the table together. And the men are going to serve us in just a minute. But look, in love, I warn you, if you're here, we are delighted you're here. If you're not a believer, do not partake of the table. We guard the table by warning you. If you're here and you're under church discipline at another church, don't partake of the table. It's not for children. Until they're old enough to make a profession of faith themselves, be baptized, then they partake. This table is for those who embrace Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his rule, and his reign by faith. So we come brokenhearted over our own sin. At the same time, we come with absolute confidence in what's been accomplished for us. And we celebrate. We celebrate. But not before we confess. So let us bow before the Lord, confess our sins quietly before Him, and partake of this victorious, eternal, redemptive event. Our Father, we thank you so greatly for your mercy and your grace shown to us through your delight in crushing your only Son, our Lord Jesus, beaten beyond recognition. Slaughtered like a lamb who was silent. Without a word, he was crushed. And we thank you that as your sheep, you've called us to yourself. Lord, bless your people. Lord, as we come together to the table, Lord, we confess to you our sins, our rebellion. So many times we know what your will is and we go the other way. Lord, we confess this to you, every single one of us, myself first and foremost, chief of all sinners. We thank you for your mercy. We plead for for more mercy, for more grace. Lord, help us to see more clearly the visual gospel here at the table by way of the cup and the bread. Your body broke for us and your blood shed for us that we might have life and have it abundantly and eternally, for your glory and the blessing of your dear people tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.